you know, if you wake up in the morning and you suddenly you find that you're an octopus, okay, and you have eight uh, uh, appendages, you go to the mirror and you see yourself and you start moving your muscles and you see how the appendages move and you gradually learn what you are. It's not just what part of the space you occupy, but it's also how moving certain muscles changes your shape. So again, this is, it's not just a static self-occupancy, it's a kinematic occupancy, because as you move muscles, your shape changes. Controversy, there's, there's many controversial things about this, and I'll start with the simpler one, which is the fact that even in, in robotics, uh, within the robotics community, I would say there is a little bit of pushback. Uh, the kind of reviews we got, uh, and Bo can, can share, more details about that are typically things like you know why do you need to do this because we have a CAD model of the robot so why do you need to model the robot at all you just download the CAD and you have it and this is a sort of a, a little bit of a mindset shift because yes even though we do have the CAD model and we and an engineer can write down the equations of the robot and we don't really need to model the robot to model itself this idea that you keep the engineer in the loop is a problem. Yeah, I think I think that's a very great question. And it's actually a very big question because, you know, we have all this self-modeling or the capability of modeling ourselves. But this is actually very, very complex. Like it's not just about, you know, like what we did here, kinematics or morphology. It also involves like your uh, own behavior and even like your future plan, your own reasoning. So it's very, very complex. And what we do here is actually taking the first step to think about what is the simplest form of building the self-model. How we can, uh, you know, given the internal commands of robot and have the robot to see its own body, its own spatial occupancy in the 3D space. In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for self-robotics where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dweeney and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. Support for this show comes from Science Robotics Journal. I really find Science Robotics to be a great resource for reliable and tangible research where we can really push the limit of the science we do in robotics. Great way to stay up to date with the published article is checking out the released monthly issue. All the links will be included in each episode description. We will also happen to have a regular conversation on the most published science robotic articles, where also you can contribute with your question and thoughts about the research. Thanks Science Robotics for sponsoring Soft Robotics Podcast. Hello and welcome to IWA Software Robotics Podcast. Hello, Hod and Brian. Thanks so much for joining us today. So maybe if you can briefly, uh, how you'd like to find yourself. We have Hod two years ago, so if you can go firstly for maybe one first time listening to you with Hod first, yeah. Okay, yeah. So uh, hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Hod Lipson. I'm a professor of engineering and data science at uh, Columbia University in New York. And uh, we're here today to talk about some of our work on uh, self-modeling robots. Awesome. Um, hi, everyone. Um, I was a PhD student at Columbia University under Professor Hal Lipson. And now I'm a new assistant professor at Duke University. Uh, again, continue pursuing robotics and AI. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So congratulations for the paper. And I think it's very interesting concept. Uh, self-awareness and uh, self-modeling already in the morphology. But maybe I want to go for hot at the beginning because you have been doing that for a couple of decades. You mentioned that self-modeling, uh, for example, is a primitive force of self-awareness. Since in this uh, yeah, couple of years now, I, in the last years, do you have any changing about how you see self-awareness if we speak about human animals and maybe to robots? Before going to self-modeling and what it is, if we speak about human or animal to robot. Yeah, so, so let, let's start at the top and just say that, uh, let's acknowledge that, that we don't know how human self-awareness works. Uh, it's you know a topic that uh, people have worked on, have been thinking about for millennia, philosophers, theologians, cognitive scientists, psychologists, uh, 
We don't have a good idea of how it actually works. We all sort of feel it on the basic every day, but we don't really know how it works. And so uh, robotics really brings a new window into this, uh, just like these other fields. And, and what's interesting about robotics was different than psychology and cognitive science uh, is that we uh, can actually, we don't investigate an existing system, we build it from the ground up. So we take a constructive approach to understanding self-awareness. Uh, we actually try to build it and we start with very, very simple systems. So unlike cognitive science that is looking at the way animals and humans and psychology is all about how humans think, and that's so complicated. We, we humans are very, very complicated. It's like starting with the most difficult system. So we're starting with a very simple system. Uh, we're starting with robots and we're building it from the ground up. And our hypothesis uh, that we've developed over the years, and we've been working on this for about 20 years, is that self-awareness is really the ability to imagine yourself in the future. That's it. So when you, when you think about yourself in the future, you're self-aware. And the, how far into the future you can think about yourself, so that's how self-aware you are. So if we humans, we think about ourselves in, into retirement. Okay? We think about well, how we're going to feed ourselves when we're retired. And because of that, we save for retirement. And we think about our children and how our grandchildren, we think really long term. A dog maybe thinks about the next few minutes. What is this food going to taste like? And should I chase this rabbit or not? So, so, so you know, we all, every animals, dogs, chimpanzees, primates, humans, we're all self-aware to different levels. And we're trying to build that ability into robots and this ability uh, of a machine to imagine itself in, into the future. And we're starting very, very simple. And this idea that a robot can see itself maybe a few seconds into the future in what we call a self-model, a kinematic self-model. But in the long term, we want to go further and have robots that imagine themselves uh, in, in, uh, into, into longer horizons. But we're starting very simple. And, and this project that Bo and I did uh, uh, just recently and that we published uh, early here uh, uh, this month in, in July is about, it's a new way to create robots that can think about themselves and predict and see themselves into the near-term future. It's a very short-term thing. But that's what we did. And that's the big picture of why we're very excited about it. It's not just a practical thing. It's also kind of very philosophical. Yes, yes. Maybe I want to ask uh, Brianna, Yarn also, if you can add, hold on, the, the way of the design, that self-modeling of robots. Because here you imagine it is looking to that whole of Maryland, just try to see, the, imagine yourself. How you transfer this philosophy here just to something, it's really complex uh, to transferred to robots. So how you map this self-modeling to a robot to imagine themselves in short term, for example? Yeah. The design. I think, yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's a very great question. And it's actually a very big question because you know, we have all this self-modeling or the capability of modeling ourselves, but this is actually very, very complex. Like it's not just about, you know, like what we did here, kinematics or morphology. It also involves like your uh, own behavior and even like your future plan, your own reasoning. So it's very, very complex. And what we do here is actually taking the first step to think about what is the simplest form of building the self-model. And for us, the simplest form is the capability of seeing the internal representation of your own body. It's like you look into a mirror and you can imagine uh, all kinds of ways you, you behave and you can imagine what your 3D body will look like. So the way we try to uh, map things over is to see how we can, uh, you know, given the internal commands of robot and have the robot to see its own body, its own spatial occupancy in the 3D space as the way that we can perturb it, we can rotate it, we can visualize it. So this is how we kind of do this mapping as the very first step towards this. Mm -hmm, great. So maybe I would like to go for hold here about imagination of the robot because it's very interesting the way of the morphology trans. Yeah, in, in the in the end of the paper, how they imagine themselves in this cloud of space of points here. And it was, if you can explain that, I think the paper also touched about the physical simulation and the way we use the meshes, for example, or this representation to something I think, I think this point I, I find very interesting, the way of imagination. I think if we look to the human, imagine yourself, it's just very complicated, the self is 
something right, right. you can answer. It's just very <clears throat> who I am, like this point. Right, right. So, it's very difficult to to think about how how we imagine our our own body. But if you you know you close your eyes and you try to think about what part of space of the volume, the space around you, you're going to occupy if you move your hand forward or you take a step backwards. It's it's a very visceral thing, and we do this all the time. When you but we don't think about it. It's very subconscious. When you uh, wake up in the morning and you get dressed, you move your hand through clothes and you do all kinds of things. You don't think about it, but your body is, your brain is constantly imagining what part of space your body is going to fill. When you walk, when you kick a ball, when you climb a tree, when you walk upstairs, when you try to walk in a narrow space through a door without hitting the boundary, continuously we are thinking about how our body fits in our environment and how not to bump into things and how to touch things we want to touch and pick up things we want to pick up and not to touch other things. And we do this all the time, our body does it, but we don't think about it, it's, co it's completely automatic. And that's what the robot did. So what we did basically, it's, it's, we had to translate to your question, this very abstract notion into a very practical thing. And the way we worked, we created this big neural network that uh, can answer a query. And that query is, if I move my muscles, my motors, the robot says, in a particular way, if I move my, my motors in a particular way, will I occupy point X, Y, Z in space or not? And, and the network takes in the motor commands and that query point at X, Y, Z, and it answers yes or no or maybe with a probability. So it's a probabilistic model that gives you what are the chances, what are the odds you're going to occupy position A, B, you know, X, Y, Z, given the motor commands? And that is uh, a very generic way of thinking about self-modeling because it allows a robot, it can model uh, all kinds of robots. It can model robots that are hard, robots that are soft, robots that have two degrees of freedom or robots that have a thousand degrees of freedom. It can model the end effector, which is the end of a robotic arm that holds a tool or a foot of robot or the entire body. It can model the face of a speaking robot. It, it's a very, very generic notion of self-model. It's basically, it's an occupus, it's prediction, predicted, it's an occupancy uh, sort of uh, probabilistic occupancy model. And what's nice about this is that it can be very easily trained by matching it up against images. So the way we train this model, in the beginning, the, the robot doesn't, this model doesn't know where the robot is. It's like a cloud. It says the robot is everywhere and nowhere at the same time. It's just like all over the place. But then these, the self-image has to be consistent with camera views. If a camera sees you from a particular point of view and you think you're supposed to be at a particular point, but in the image you're not in that point, then that piece can be is an error. So it goes back and forth between these images from camera feedback and the self-model and gradually fixes all these inconsistently until the self-model is consistent with all the camera's views. And at that point, that self-model is done. And now, is it perfect? It's not perfect, but it's close enough that it allows the robot to do various tasks, like touch something, without touching something else, avoid obstacles, reach into things, and so on. So it's a, it's a very simple, primitive notion of self. It's, it's not self-aware in any human-level way. It's not even self-aware like a dog, but it's still self-aware maybe like a worm, like something very, very trivial that can move around things without avoiding some parts and, and addressing others. So that's what we did. It's a it's a very simple idea. It took you know three years to to make it work, but uh, but still, it's a simple idea, and uh, well, we have to see how far we can uh, push it forward. Yeah, I like the point you mentioned at the end, the question about the self modeling, because again, as a human, you can imagine yourself, but maybe this is not the right image about yourself, and and I think you this point, if you can explain how you make sure the robot makes sure it takes the right image, because. I don't know if that's related, but if we speak about yeah, like mapping from human, sometimes we don't imagine ourselves exactly the same. So how do you make sure this um, push I think forward? Yeah. Fr from the practical point of view, like the uh, like having the correct spatial occupancy is actually a very fundamental a fundamental aspect of all 
areas in robotics. If you think about contact dynamics, uh, collision, avoidance, and motion planning and control, all of these actually needs some sort of accurate uh, spatial occupancy. And to make sure this is accurate, the way we do this is we have like multiple cameras that capture the robot 3D body during the training phase from different angles, and you align them into the 3D reposition of the robot. Uh, but it's, you know, in the end, after it learns, you know, the interesting part is actually is not super accurate. Um, and this is something that we have been talking about, you know, one of the surprising effects is that even though it's not super accurate, it still works. It still works in when we deploy the same model in motion planning. And this is a very interesting effect that we've been talking about that we, we, we call it good enough principle. It's not something that, you know, we have to be super accurate, like humans, right? We are not super accurate about our 3D body. We still sometimes bump into uh, the tables and we hurt ourselves. Uh, but just because we have this blur boundary of where the spatial occupancy could be for our body, it's already good enough for us to do high level motion planning. And maybe like in the future, if we want to be super careful, super precise on certain actions, we can start to refine that around that boundary through more practices. Um, and this is sort of like the continual learning way of looking at this problem. Initially, it doesn't have to be super accurate, but in the end, uh, you may refine it based on your task or experience, and but you don't throw it away, right? You kind of keep that and you continue update the belief of your own body along the way of you, uh, your learning experience. Mm -hmm. Great. Maybe hold if you'd like to add something here. Yeah, so, so, so it's all about getting that self-model, the neural network, to be consistent with, with external views from the camera. It's, uh, as, uh, as uh, uh, you know, a popular science reporter that was describing this uh, said, you know, if you wake up in the morning and you suddenly you find that you're an octopus, Okay, and you have eight uh, uh, appendages. You go to the mirror and you see yourself and you start moving your muscles and you see how the appendages move and you gradually learn what you are. It's not just what part of the space you occupy, but it's also how moving certain muscles changes your shape. So again, this is, it's not just a static self-occupancy, it's a kinematic occupancy because as you move muscles, your shape changes. How does your shape change as you activate your muscles? So it's not just a 3D model, it's what we call a kinematic model. It's a dynamic model that changes over time. And that's what really uh, the robot is trying to learn. And we did this um, in a sort of offline way in which the robot uh, collected a lot of data for several hours and then processed it for a day and created that self-model. But in practice, uh, you know, if this is deployed, the robot would continuously model itself all the time. The robot in a factory, a robot or a driverless car, it would continuously model itself so that if something is broken, it will suddenly know. If something is not moving the way it should be, it will know. Uh, so it's a continuous modeling. Again, it's just like we look at ourselves in the mirror every day, and if something isn't right, we say, hey, I, uh, I feel uh, something is a little bit... You know, my arm is, my muscle is aching. I'm, I'm not moving my arm the, 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 the usual way. You know something is wrong because, you know, you're not moving the way you expect. And, and, you know, we want the robot to be able to do that. And that's, you know, one of the practical aspects of self-modeling is that, um, you know, as a society, as we depend more and more on robots, on machines, smart factories, smart cars, smart... Uh, cities. I mean, we're, we're entrusting our lives more and more into these automated systems. Our supply chains are full of robots and we depend on those robots to do their job. Uh, we cannot babysit these robots all the time. They have to learn to take care of themselves. And what we're doing here in this project is allowing these robots to take care of themselves, to understand what they are, to know if they're broken, to feel that something isn't working well and, and, and call for help. I mean, we want these machines to take care of themselves it's really all about resilience. It's all about uh, you know recovery from damage and, and failure, and that, that's what we're trying to do here. That's the practical value, I would say, of this approach, uh, be, besides its philosophical sort of uh, motivations. Mm -hmm. Maybe before going to this point, I would like to ask you about the controversy around self-awareness and robotics community. I don't know if there is controversy about why we sh I know this, it's still in the beginning, but can you share about something like frustrating to you that maybe self-awareness 
and general level in robotics? How do you see the approach? Yeah, well, well, so, so, you know, controversy, there's, there's many controversial things about this. And I'll start with the simpler one, which is the fact that even in, in robotics, uh, within the robotics community, I would say there is a little bit of pushback. Uh, the kind of reviews we got, uh, and Bo can, can share more details about that, are typically things like, you know, why do you need to do this? Because we have a CAD model of the robot. So why do you need to model the robot at all? You just download the CAD and you have it. And this is a sort of a, a little bit of a mindset shift because, yes, even though we do have the CAD model, and, we, and an engineer can write down the equations of the robot. And we don't really need to model the robot to model itself. This idea that you keep the engineer in the loop is a problem because uh, it's, it's, uh, it means that when the robot breaks, you have to call the engineer. It means that if you're sending robots to space, you know, who's going to take care of them there because there's no human that can, can fix them or remodel. It, it sort of our reliance on, you know, smart engineers to do all the analytics, you know, has its limit. And and so there's a little bit of, a, of a, I say, controversial stress about, you know, do we want these machines to learn on their own or do we want engineers to keep on modeling them manually? And, and you know, it's a little bit of a job security almost uh, that we, okay, we engineers want to stay employed, so we're going to, we want the robots to, to depend on us. But but, but I think we really want to give these robots the autonomy to model themselves. And it's a good thing because it allows them to be more self-sustaining, really, uh, and so on. But then there's the bigger controversy, which is, you know, what is self-awareness? Uh, is it the ability to see yourself or is it something else? Um, you know, and even if it is, do we want to allow, these, to, to allow machines to have this kind of autonomy? Uh, you know, is it... Uh, is it perhaps are we going too far? Uh, because with autonomy, there's always loss of control. These two things go hand in hand. More autonomy, less control. Uh, more control, less autonomy. And these things are always hand in hand. And I have to say that the answer is not simple. I think, uh, I think in some areas we want to give robots autonomy. Uh, you know, for recovery, for damage in the factory, in the supply chain, yes. And in some areas, uh, let's say self-driving cars, we want to have some autonomy, but we, on the other hand, we want them to follow rules in a particular way. So this, it's always a, it's a, it's a complex issue, and it really depends on the applications and the circumstances. But you know, but the technology again can be used uh, in in many ways. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Maybe beyond that, can tell about the wear and tear, the damages scenario for the damages, how in self-image, self-here, image or self-modeling and the damage, what's actually happening for the robot? I think this is very important from the paper and also we can go for hold and can say from some soft robotics, how we see that also. Yes, I think, you know, one of the, uh, the biggest challenge, like when we deploy robots is there are so many things we cannot predict, right? So there are things like, even though like Hot says, we have the, the CAD model, you know, we don't even know the CAD model is the right way to represent robots. And to me, the biggest question of like all this modeling the world or modeling the robot itself is what is the right representation? What is the right way to represent it? And, you know, we have seen so many examples in the entire scientific history, different ways of representing things actually leads to very different conclusions. Some things like some, sometimes if you represent something in, in a simpler way, it actually make you uh, much easier to solve the downstream tasks. And sometimes if you represent it in a very complex manner, uh, then it's very hard for you to use the same idea uh, on your downstream task. So this is about, you know, this new paper actually is looking at a different way to represent it. And what enable us to do is um, the fact that when we deploy the robots and things could happen, right? So things that we couldn't think about when we designed a CAD model could happen. For example, certain motors could break, uh, or you wanna use this robot suddenly on a new task and nothing needs to be changed, but you want to add a new tool, add a new uh, anti-factor to the robot uh, so that it can execute different tasks, then you don't want to actually go back and forth with the engineer and tune it and see, oh, hey, here is something that's damaged and how we can fix that in the CAD modeling. And then you come back and forth and measure things. That's very slow. And maybe the engineers couldn't predict what's going to happen. So you don't want to have every robot to have an engineer to be on site to watch it. And what uh, this work enables us to do is when you have this spatial object securities, 
what you can do is when you look at it, this robot uh, functioning in the real world, uh, the robot has internal belief, which is the self-model about what his 3D body looks like during motion. Um, and then you can observe it every once in a while. You can send some other robots or you know other drones to look at the robot. In our case, we just send cameras, right? And look at the robot again and see, hey, what you are really looking like. And then you can compare that real observation with simply one example with your internal belief. And if there is a mismatch in between, you're going to know something, something is wrong. Now, and this is not very new, you know, in the self-modeling literature, you know, nearly all, every single self-modeling paper has a section that says we can detect damage. We can detect there, uh, there's a big difference. Uh, but what's new about this work is actually we not only can tell something is wrong, we can tell you what is going, uh, what is going on. Uh, the, the, the robot can come back and tells you um, something, is going, uh, something is going on, but I can uh, further tell you the second motor of my arm is broken. Or I can say all my motors are functioning very well, uh, but I have a new tool on any factor. Now, this is the first step of identifying the damage or the change and then tell you explicitly what is going on. Right. And if we never actually study this problem, we, we kind of avoid this or run away from this problem. Um, we lost the chance to study what is the right form of representing your body. And so that it's actually more explainable, right? It's actually safer if the robot can tell you what's going on and the human can come and take a look and see, you know, if this is true. And this is kind of the first aspect, right? The second aspect is the robot then further needs some more examples in the real world, what it looks like right now, kind of a monitoring system and give you, uh, in our case, 50 more examples. And the robot can quickly adapt its own self-image to match that real-world observation. So the robot can update this belief. And what this enables is that even though there is something changes or something damaged, the robot can still have a chance to figure out another way to keep doing the function, to keep doing the task uh, with this new recognition of its own body. A so recovery, this is, yeah. Right, the recovery. Right, so this is kind of like what Hart says, that the resilience of the machines, you know, even though there is something uh, damaged or something wrong, you can still recognize it and it's, you can keep functioning without stopping the task. Um, and then the third aspect I really like about this is, it's not just explainable in a sense that it tells you what's going on. Uh, the robot can plan a series of actions and show you what itself is gonna look like or what it's itself think itself is gonna look like if it performs certain actions in the future in a sequence of 3D movie instead of um, execute the action immediately. So you can actually take a look at the robot's plan before it execute this. And I think that's critical for us to deploy the robots in different complex environment for human to inspect it. Mm -hmm. Great. And Go ahead. I, I think I think I want to say a couple of more words on, on the soft robotics angle, which I yeah. think is very important. So soft robotics uh, is a much harder field uh, than uh, than uh, than hard than rigid robotics because it's very hard to model. It's very difficult to model, uh, and and one of the challenges in soft robotics is that you cannot take a CAD model of a soft robot because CAD doesn't handle soft things very well, and soft robots can have many more degrees of freedom that they can control. So uh, you can have, uh, you know, thousands of degrees of freedom. There's a lot of uncertainty. If a, if a soft robot moves three times in the same way, it might look differently in each one of those three times because it's soft. There's a lot of uh, chaos and uh, variability. <clears throat> and so traditional ways of modeling robots don't work well with soft robots. Uh, the traditional you know, control theory ways, linear matrices, transformation matrices, uh, transfer function, Jacobians, all these different things that we use in traditional rigid body robotics don't work well in soft robotics. This is why you see the whole literature of soft robotics tends to be very empirical. There's not a lot of theory around it. It's sort of mostly we build this and this is how it works. This is what you can, can do, but there's not a lot of theory. In large part, it's because it's very, very difficult to model soft robots and this highlights this need for these automated modeling tools so when you bring the uh, you know and we haven't done this yet this yet so this is something we need to do is to take these tools this probabilistic holistic 
occupancy query based model and apply it to soft robots with thousands of degrees of freedom and see if we can model them. And I think it's going to work. Uh, it's you know not going to be easy, but I think it's the right kind of approach to model these kinds of, of systems like software was that have many, many degrees of freedom and a lot of uncertainty. Yes. I would like to ask you here, Hold, about how we can push this part exactly what you mentioned. And if we speak about self-modeling, I think it's interesting that it was this damage and that what you highlight in the paper. Uh, but if we speak about soft robot, how do you see self-modeling can be embedded in the body itself? In this? Because in soft robotics, we use an embedded sensor, whatever, to see damage. You see this way. If you can just think about how we can push another way to manifest self-modeling inside something like soft body, for example, which is different, as you mentioned both here. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I, it, it, I think there's the, the way we did it right now requires an external camera. Uh, so it's like going to the mirror and looking at yourself tomorrow's yourself. Uh, we have another paper that's coming out soon uh, with Bo and a few other students, uh, which we call an egocentric self-modeling, which is how, uh, how a robot can model itself using only a first-person view. And this is a little bit like, like uh, you know, you, you, you look at yourself a little bit, you don't need the camera, you just see yourself. You, or you move and you look at the floor and you see how the, the floor is moving as you walk. And you can begin to model yourself simply by using your own eyes. So I think that's maybe the direction you're going at. Is in so how how robots can model themselves in a completely self-contained way, rather than relying on cameras from the outside and mirrors and all kinds of and uh, things uh, uh, to help them. Uh, but we're not there yet. So right now we still need these auxiliary cameras that can look look uh, from the outside. Mm -hmm, great. We are discussing about the limitation or challenge in this work, and what what do you think that the next thing about self modeling you can do here? Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, there are a lot we can now do, uh, and you know, like I said at the beginning, there are things like high level reasoning we can now do yet. For example, can I model for certain situations? Uh, what myself is going to do in that type of situation. And we as humans actually do this a lot, right? This metacognition capability. If we look at a certain scenario, if I go pick up coffee, we almost do this in a subconscious way. Like we just pick up the coffee in the same way. We move our hands um, and we don't actually use too much energy in our brain to think about how we're going to do that. We don't actually do the spatial occupancy very uh, frequently. But when I say drive a new car, I actually need to pay a lot more attention uh, to, to do this, right? So how we can actually model, not just the, the kinematic level, but the behavior level, and even like in a dynamics level, right? If I'm going to jump, right? If I'm going to have a contact with different kind of uh, objects, uh, what will happen? And this is, I think it's not just the problem with how we can improve the current model is even further taking this away, you know, are we even finding still the, the, the correct way, the correct representation of the, uh, the model of the world or the model of the, uh, the robot itself, right? So this representation is still involves so many things that we need to think about. And also from the practical perspective, how we can continue using this uh, differentiable uh, manner so that we can combine this model with all kinds of existing motion planning control algorithm, right? We don't want to throw them. How we can combine them in a smoothless manner so we can continue build on what the community has has been doing uh, with our new representation of the world and that way you know we are kind of serving as a bridge to connect all the um, you know dots that we know from the robotics community and uh, continue to grow on this one and another thing is that you know how even we can transform the same principle to look at how can we use the same thing to model even other robots Right, you know, one way, I mean, I don't know if this is the only way, but you know, one way to even look at our own body or our own self-model is to look at, can we see what our self look, is gonna look like or behave from other robots or other humans perspective, right? Like sometimes we have this self-reflection by interacting with other robots or other humans, right? Can we know what our body looks like or what's our limitation from the body 
uh, or the, the limitation of our mind or the algorithm by interacting with the external world. So this um, interaction with the external world, I, I think it's kind of still quite limited in this current sense where we only model the robot and deploy that in the, the sort of the known world, the known world um, and how we can actually incorporate the changes in the real world and separate that from our self-model uh, and connect this. Actually, the most important thing is actually contain, uh, connect our own self-model with the external environmental factors um, all in a coherent manner. So I think that's kind of the big challenge uh, in the future. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, Holt, you would like to add something here? Yeah, I think there's... Uh... I think it, we, we can uh, separate sort of future work into a couple of different directions. There's the obvious thing, which is true for any robotics project, which is can it work on other robots? Can it work on more complex robots? This is always the question. Whatever you do in robotics, that's the automatic question. Uh, and it's true for our case as well. We have we demonstrated this on one robot. We want to see if it will work on other robots or more complex robots or robots with more legs and different kinds of robots, hard robots, soft robots. So there's more and more things we want to see how far we can go. Uh, and then, of course, as, as, as Bo mentioned, we want to have the modeling, not just uh, short-term kinematics, but we want to term, model long-term kinematics, long-term behavior, uh, robots modeling other robots, uh, robots modeling themselves from a egocentric point of view. There's a lot of different angles to this, uh, but you know this is a, the first step in a long journey. Mm -hmm, great. Maybe since it goes then, I have a question. I would ask you, Hot, here about the way you choose the problem here. You have been working in this topic. I think it's fascinating, and I'm, I see that you try to push it so much. But when you try to think about this concept, like egocentric or self-modeling, can you take us about the way of thinking about? observing that and doing as a solution on robotics. And do you think generally in the field, sometimes why we do what we do? You see, it's a project. Well, why we do that? Did this lead us to the right answer? I don't know if you get what I mean, but the way yeah, we're thinking I mean, and the design here. I, 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 you know, you're asking a really good question, a really tough one on sort of how you plan, how does one plan research and how does one know what, what, it, what directions to explore? And I have to say, you know, we could do a whole podcast on just that. I mean, the, 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 the reality is that it's very difficult to plan and we don't know what what's going to work. And in if, you know, we, we tend to do podcasts like these on successful projects. But for every successful project, there's another 20 uh, failed projects that we don't talk about. Uh, and so from the outside, it might look, oh, wow, you know, they choose projects and the projects work and they talk about them. But what you, what you don't see is that there's a lot of dead ends and we are trying numerous different ideas. Some of them, most of them don't work and we don't talk about them. And so there's this illusion, like one can choose uh, and plan and make things work and oh, how did you know in advance that this is gonna work? But we don't know, we're just trying a lot of things. I mean, Bo can tell you about uh, numerous uh, projects that didn't work and there's, uh, Every student is uh, working on, you know, a dozen or a half a dozen different projects and some work and some don't. So we just try a lot of things. And, uh, you know, I, I know that this project specifically uh, will lead to another dozen different projects. And, you know, most of them will not pan out, but some will. And that will be the next step. So I'm, I'm hoping, uh, you know, that people that uh, listen to this podcast and that they're thinking about hey they should try this they should try that that they should go ahead and try it themselves uh because okay because you know it's not like you know we have the answers and we have to be convinced it's, just, it's we're just as blind as anybody else and we're just trying things out so there's a lot of things to try a lot of opportunities we as a community in robotics have this incredible ai tools now and we have, uh, we can take these, these incredible AI tools and, and start applying them to all these interesting robotic questions and see how far we can go. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a great time. Okay. Maybe I want to ask you about something surprising, but maybe Bjorn can tell us about something. Uh, yeah, there's failure or something or something yeah, interesting to learn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as, as a graduate student uh, before, you know, um, the, the number of times you failed actually matters a lot. That I think... To be honest, that depends, that decides how 
successful your uh, PhD degree will be in the end. Like if you fail many, many times, you probably will have actually a very good experience in your PhD. You know, it sounds like controversy, but it, it turns out you know, in my first year uh, working with Han, uh, I didn't publish any paper on this topic. And we tried so many things. Um, you know, I read all kinds of things in cognitive science, neuroscience, psychology, uh, and try different methods in AI and, you know, how can ground that into the physical intelligence. But that's actually, I found it's the fascinating part of actually being able to work in uh, science and research is to explore uh, as many directions as you want. And, you know, if you don't do that, you know, you, you basically lose all the chances to discover anything new. Uh, but if you try many different of them, you get a sense of feeling that what could work and what couldn't and what could work in the future, right? Maybe that's just because the limitation of the technology we have so far. Uh, but you can't just stop uh, because of other people telling you uh, this is not good for this conference or this is not good for this journal. Uh, what you really want to do is find the, your own belief. And this is uh, what Hart have been telling me. Uh, yeah, you know, the, the way you have to think about research is find your true belief uh, in science and then ask other people uh, who want to work with you or who do not want to work with you. This is where I'm going. Like, do you want to join me or not? Um, so you want to basically take, take that. Uh, and that's kind of how you can keep being excited and, you know, doing things and exploring different aspects. Uh, and this is also the true reason why I'm now pursuing this faculty position to um, trying to keep inspired the next generations and actually to be able to keep this nature of exploration in mind. Um, and, you know, hopefully one day, maybe or may not be like, we'll find a way that we can lead to the truly, you know, self-aware robots or robots that can model other robots or, you know, robots that can model the world, they can be safe and, you know, uh, be explainable and work well with humans, right? But if you never try it, uh, you will never be successful. And, you know, the, the failure times actually matters a lot. So I feel like don't be instead discouraged by the failures. Like these failures actually is telling you stories and you just have to connect them in the end. Um, you know, that will actually give you a whole picture of the field that you couldn't actually experience by just reading, like how to say, the successful stories. Uh, that's impressive. Maybe I would like to hold in that case because I think I really like what he's doing for sure. Everyone, I think it's for it's that personal, I think it's very, you're lucky to have him as supervisor. But maybe I'll ask a hold in that case. Sometimes if you pursue new ideas like this are really audacious, it's maybe lonely sometimes because if in a community you, you do something here in this direction, maybe people don't understand what you do. Can you tell us about that? Because I think it's very important because sometimes it's repeated. Sometimes you choose something because it's, it's trendy or you can't get it published and it's sometimes you doubt in the what you do in the end of the day you want to do what you believe in can you tell us what about this process in your mind how to to if it's get lonely to do something and no it is it, it is it is uh um well i, I don't want to say it's lonely and difficult because because that sounds you know so why are you doing this job right uh it's it's uh it's actually uh it's it's uh fun and exciting as long as you can not take the rejections seriously and it's hard okay but i think this paper uh was rejected i don't know who knows how many times uh some of our papers get you know get rejected 10 times from different places until they get published 10 times every time 10 times every time it's a it's a you know a day of mourning okay because you get the reviews and and uh, and uh, they tell you it's it's a uh, it's uh you know reviews that it, it can't be done and it's been done before and you know all kinds of crazy contradictory reviews uh so we definitely get that all the time uh and uh you just have to uh keep keep going forward and i think the only way to do that is to have um uh a, a Two things, I think. One is a community in, in the research lab, so you're not alone. You have other students, you have your advisor, hopefully on your side. Uh, you have uh, people outside your lab that you're interacting with, and you can see that everybody is having the same experience, uh, and that you're not, uh, it's not that only you get your papers rejected. The other thing, I think this is a role of the advisor, 
is to bring that perspective. So when you're a student and you're doing your first job and you've published your first paper and it gets rejected, it's the end of the world because it's your entire effort has been for two years. You've been working on this thing and then you send it in and it comes back and the reviewers do not mince words and they say in a very mean way, no, this is not good and it's, it's all the bad things about it. And that's a terrible experience. And that's your first paper and it happens to everyone. Everyone goes through it. There is not a single person on the planet that sends this paper and the paper comes back with applause. It's, it's amazing paper, uh, you know, where, you know, and uh, we've already published it. It's so good. You don't need to change anything. It's never happened. In, all right, but, but everybody get, goes through that experience and they feel bad. So, so this is the role of the advisor is to say exactly what I'm saying right now. This is what's going to happen. Uh, it comes back. It's going to appear very bad. Uh, but that that's, doesn't mean anything. It's, it's the process. It's unfortunate that that's how it needs to be, but that's, it happens to everybody. And we're going to take the paper. We're going to take one day vacation and we can cry. And then we can come back home and come back to work. And we're going to do the next version. And we're going to do this 10 times. And the 10th th time, it's going to go away. And that happens in all papers. But that's the advisor's role because we have the experience to say, you know, this is what's going to happen. And you're not alone. And it happens to everybody. But when you're a student and it happens to you the first time, you feel it's the end of the world. So I think that's, I hope Bo will explain this to the student, to his students, when they send the paper out and it comes back with a rejection, which it invariably will. And, uh, and this is just the process. So, um, so I think that's important to know for everybody. And if you're listening to this podcast and you're about to send your first paper, then and just know steal yourself for this moment when it's going to come back with with negative reviews and you know and that doesn't mean your idea is not right it just means that maybe you didn't explain it well more likely the reviewers are not good so reviewers are human also and they were busy thinking about something else i mean there's a million other reasons than just the idea is not good so steal yourself for that moment and be ready to resubmit that's all you can do Thanks so much. I do appreciate these words. Thank you. Thanks so much. Maybe a quick question for you, Holt, uh, from the audience. Ask about your nature paper, that the physics is driven from video. Uh, can you talk about the paper? So how it differs from... Yeah, so that's a paper that just came out a few minutes yep. ago uh, yeah. or uh, a few uh, days ago. And actually, uh, it's a completely different topic, so it's hard to do it in two minutes. Bo, do you want to say a few words on it? That's uh, Bo's... Uh, a lead author on that paper as well. Yeah, so I think uh, the way I see it is, you know, we have been talking about how we can model the robot it's, uh, itself or model other robots, but we forgot one thing, which is the world is not just about the robots. It's not just about humans. It's actually about uh, everything else. It's also, you know, the physics. And what's the, the underlying common principle under all these complex physical world um, and that's kind of the, the way we kind of look at it is all these kind of complex dynamical systems around us actually is shared among all of us. And that paper is kind of look at this perspective, how we can distill the fundamental principle of different complex physical scenario, like different physical dynamical systems. And it actually will pave a way, even kind of lead a new way, how we can model the robot uh, itself, like the self-modeling. But for now, what we do is actually taking all the textbook examples uh, in physics and, and dynamical systems. Uh, and what we do is actually by just looking at all this uh, video recordings of these physical systems moving around, um, can you find out two things? One is what is the minimum number of governing variables behind all these physical systems? And two, what the variables could be in these uh, physical systems? the values could be, right? Not just the number of variables, but what their values could be. And this is critical because for a robot arm, it's quite easy to do a CAD model to model it. For uh, a pendulum, it's quite easy. You can write down a dynamical system. This is like 101 dynamical system. But what about other things like uh, a water? Like you have a swimming pool. You want to model the water in there and you want to send your robots in there. Uh, what about a fire system, right? What about uh, the global climate challenge we are facing now. There are so many data that we have, but we don't know how to interpret them. 
And so this paper looked at how we can use AI to automatically find out basically the first step the human scientists will do is define the important variables, right? And to define that, we have to know what are the number of variables we need to define and what these variables could be. And this is the kind of the approach we're taking here to look at the, the video recordings or, you know, another way in a more general, uh, general manner is looking at the video, the, the data we collected from this massive parallel, uh, you know, sensors that we have, like cameras, and just looking at them to find out the governing principles behind them. And what's interesting about that paper is it's actually discovering the variables in a very different way than humans. And we actually still don't understand what it is doing. It gives the same number of variables as we define the systems uh, for the known systems, but it doesn't actually give the same values as we do. And in fact, you know, that triggers a deeper question is, are we even defining the physical variables in the right way for us, you know, in a way that it's easier for us to discover new physics, right? So this actually triggers so many even philosophical questions that we have to think about what, going back to the first principle of discovering the physics and dynamics, um, the, the rules uh, behind the, the world, what is the right way to represent these variables? So this whole way of seeing the, the representation of the world is kind of, kind of mysterious to me, but it's fascinating. So that's kind of where we're researching uh, right now. And to, to bring this back to robotics, uh, and especially soft robotics, I think we can say that it, here's, here's what this new system does. It, it uh, allows you to take, imagine that you take a video camera, you point it at a robot, you let the robot move around, and then the, uh, the, the AI algorithm thinks about that video for a day and then says, this robot has four degrees of freedom just from looking at the video, right? And here are the four degrees. It has degree number one, two, three, and four, and this is how it will change the video. If you change degree number one, the, the, this arm will do this. You change degree number two, it's going to move this way and so on. So purely from the video. Again, something we do very intuitively but the AI is learning to do that. If, if, uh, now, for a robot that has four degrees of freedom, we can do it intuitively. But what if I show you a jelly robot that has, uh, you know, uh, 24 degrees of freedom? Or it looks like it's moving all, like a, you know, a jellyfish. It's moving all over the place. It's hard for me to know how many degrees of freedom this thing has. So this AI system that we developed, we can look at this, video of this very soft robot and say this soft robot has 24 degrees of freedom and here they are and once you know how many degrees of freedom this dynamical system has now you can start building controllers you can start controlling it you can start seeing how uh what it can and cannot do you can do planning you can do simulation you can do you can gain insight and say, oh, it has 24 degrees of freedom. Now I'm beginning to understand that it's not some chaotic mist. It's actually a very, you know, it has, it's simpler than what I thought. It's not thousands, it's only 24. So you can start maybe having some insight into how it works. So this ability of a machine to look at a video of a complex system and reduce it to a small number of degrees of freedom is really important for planning, control, insight, prediction, almost everything we care about. And this is what we've done. Uh, it's useful not just for robotics. We have some examples of other things that are not robots. Uh, but I think in the context of robotics, it's especially useful because robotics is all about controlling complex dynamical systems. And, and I think that's, it's, it lends itself to that very well. Right. And one small thing I want to add on that is actually a back history of that project actually roots back to the same reason why we actually start this science robotics paper is initially we look at the way how we can model the robot, not just in the 3D occupancy, but from 2D images, right? So you have a camera, 30 person camera, look at the robot. And what we discovered is actually when you roll out the future, you want to predict what's going to happen in the future of the robots. Um, it quickly be become like a very blurred image. It doesn't know what it looks like into the future. And this is instability um, on predicting the long-term future on this high-dimensional visual space. Um, even though intriguing because it's interpretable and you can visualize it and you have the data for free because you can just have a camera to record it, it's not stable. Um, and you know we kind of go to the really fundamental aspect to study this problem and see 
why this is not stable. Why the image we roll out the future, if we continually predict the future, it's going to disappear. Why the object doesn't follow the physics anymore? Why uh, the robot or the pendulum doesn't know it's a pendulum or is a uh, or robot? Uh, we we did nothing. It's just rolling to predict the future, and it's because you know we are predicting the future not on the right space. The space is too high dimension. Right? If, if your underlying principle of governing system is only needs four-dimensional system and you're predicting the future on these millions of dimensional system on the pixel space, um, of course, it's very easy to go after the manifold, go out, out of the surface of the, the governing principle of the system. Um, so now if you reduce these millions of uh, bits of information to only four numbers, two numbers, or six numbers that is really governing the system, there is no way you can go outside of the surface because you're constraining the system to have to be stayed on this uh, manifold. And now if you roll out the future, you want to predict the future. Uh, every single moment, it's going to be a clear, crisp, uh, crisp image uh, or uh, uh, you know, a, a video that represents the future of this dynamical system. So you know, as I said at the beginning, it's like you know, so many failures we tried at the beginning, and that's how you discover the fundamental principles um, you should you know, doing research on, and this is kind of how it leads to actually very two different papers, um, but with the same kinds of spirit. Great. Maybe the last question for here, I'll ask uh, Holtman, you can comment also about it. I just want to ask you if there's something maybe still for you mystical when it comes to self-awareness, yeah. and you think it would be hard to implement it in robotics in general. And also, since you predict the future, I don't know if that's relevant to go on the past and, and the robot, what's happening and the change it. Do you think that's, yeah, I don't know how you think about this, because it's really interesting, something to understand even what's happening for us, the human here, this concept. So is something you think very challenging to be implemented in self-awareness? Oh, there's a, every, this is, this is a, the long-term trajectory is very challenging, but first going to the past is very useful. If you've collected data in the past, you can take that data and see if it matches your, your self-model. And, and, and use it to refine the self-model. And you might say, okay, I now have a much better self-model than I used to have. Let me go back to my, to my recording of what I did you know, a week ago and revisit that again, but with my new self-model, my more accurate self-model. And now what seemed to be like an error last time, it actually now makes sense. So, so being able to go back into the future revisiting the past using knowledge from the present uh, is 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 very useful I and mean, it's useful for robots it's useful for humans uh, to do that sometimes we do that we, we understand things retrospectively and and you see you see the same thing here so i think that that will be useful you know is there something mystical about this you know i'm trying to stay out of the mysticism and the supernatural but but when you talk about self-awareness and consciousness it, there is no escape i mean you're touching on on topics that are that are very very uh, meaningful and 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 possibly unique to to humans. I mean, people of of it, it's uh it's uh it's it sort of touches on the origin of the mind. I mean, these are very very almost every religion deals with this, and soul and so forth. So we're trying to stay away from that, but we obviously I think in the long term. Uh, you know, you keep hearing these in the news about sentient uh, Google and self-awareness. Typically, that's uh, sentient that has to do with with words. It's 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 a robot without a body. Say the Google thing, uh, but it communicates. It talks about all kinds of things, but it doesn't have a body. Doesn't have a physical existence, and so it's not really, in my opinion, sentient in a similar way to a human. Because it's it's basically repeating things it's it's seen on the internet, but hasn't experienced anything uh, really on its own. What we're doing is we're trying to again build it from the ground up. We're not starting with sentient at human level that can talk about the meaning of life. We're talking about almost animal sentience. Okay, this ability to, in a very simple way, understand where your body is and and when when there's discrepancy between yourself moral and reality which is in a way equivalent to a form of pain uh it's when this discrepancy happens we 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 we're, we're still very very simple we're really really in the first uh step but but i have no doubt that in the long-term future is it going to be 10 years or 100 years i don't know we will have sentience at the level of humans 
And uh, you know, a hundred years is not a long time. It's you know, our grandchildren will be living in a world where there will be sentient machines. There's no question about it, uh, and uh, it's around the corner in terms of human evolution. But you know, uh, is it going to be the same kind of sentience as humans? No, it's going to be a robotic sentience, just like a dog and a monkey are not sentient in the way humans are, but they still are sentient. They f they have emotions, they have feelings. They have needs, they have wants, uh, but they are not equivalent to humans. Robots will have sentience and it will be different. They have a different body, they have different needs, and they will have different emotions. But it's going to be a different thing, but it's going to be as sophisticated as humans. And I, uh, I, for one, am looking forward to that because I want to, you know, be able to communicate with another intelligent being that uh, is uh, maybe seeing the world in a different way. I want to see what, what the poetry that these robots will write when they can, can see the world in ways we cannot see and they can hear frequencies we cannot hear and go places we cannot go. So for me, it's a very exciting future. Uh, it's terrifying, but exciting at the same time. And we'll see, we'll see where it's going to go. And first of beyond you'd like something here? Yeah, I mean, uh, just one small point, I think, um... To me, what's really also fascinating about it is not actually to just build the robot, the self-model or being a self-aware robot. It's actually the process of studying how this can be evolved, right? This is important because, you know, if we can, like, if, of course, you know, we can take something that existed and kind of improve it. And this is, I would say, is actually an easy approach because you, you, you have a lot of evidence how it works and you just build on top of that. Um, and if there is way you can curate a lot of data, probably you know someday we ha with a lot of data with a lot of uh, large models, we can do something, uh, you know, not even better, uh, but probably s looks familiar to the pre previous prior you have. But what's really interesting to me is actually if you have nothing, right? How how this process is generated? How this process has been involved? How this was born? So this goes back to like very ancient question in artificial life, right? How this has been uh, learned? How, uh, what, what is the right way to teach the robot to do this? Or even we don't teach the robots, how we can build the right type of uh, manuals for the robots to pick so that they will learn this. So the, the, the process of studying the evolutionary process, um, the generation process of this, um, you know, consciousness of robots is really fascinating to me. Being part of it is kind of like looking at a baby grow, right? How this is going to lead to uh, what kinds of future, right? Is this predictable? No, definitely no, right? So that's kind of the important piece why we need to explore different ways to see what is the right process that will lead to the an answer we're looking for. Impressive. I don't know if you have any final words, maybe hold for people listening or what's community. Is this work in general, final words, like say? Yeah, well, I, all I can say is, you know, this is, uh, a, you know, a small step in a long journey. It's day one. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, I hope, uh, you know, I really hope that more people are uh, excited or intrigued, at least, about this topic of self-awareness and self-modeling. It's been a taboo topic in robotics for uh, since the beginning. When I started my career 20 years ago, I was told to not work on this topic. I was told consciousness, you cannot work on this because it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, for many reasons. We don't, it's uh, from, from uh, mostly because it was sort of uh, considered an area that uh, is only for psychology and cognitive science and machines can never, you know, be autonomous in a way that, that will be, that they will have self-awareness. So it was almost a futile area to work in. So I, I'm hoping that we are beginning to see that this is actually not a futile area, that there's actually, uh, we can make headway. And I think it's one of the, uh, uh, you know, one of the three big questions. Uh, I think the, the three big questions, the first, the other two are the origin of the universe and the origin of life. Uh, these are big questions that were taboo for many centuries but we've now have very good uh theories around them but the third question the origin of the mind 
is a question that we still you know, don't have a lot of uh, clues about, and I think it's time that we crack this problem. Thanks so much for the idea. And Biani, final words like say here? Um, I think I'm just feeling very excited to be part of it. Um, and as kind of the next generation after hard, I feel like, you know, I hope I could be part of the, uh, the team sort of, sort of like, you know, inspire the next generation and just keep going forward. And hopefully one day we'll have um, a more coherent and a consistent understanding of how we are actually representing the world, how we can build another intelligent machines that can model the world in a way that may or may not be dif uh, different than us, uh, but truly inspire, uh, you know, other people and machines to really um, give us a, a new future, that something that we have been able to uh, experience before. So I'm just feeling very excited about it. Thanks so again. Thanks so much for that. It was really inspiring listening to you and I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much.